five, scores! Rick Five. We've decided to get ourselves back in the game again with our podcast. Rick Five. Probably the craziest story that you're ever going to hear about hockey. We're going to be coming back to you on a regular basis. You are listening to Squid and the Ultimate Leafs fan. Hello, Canada and hockey fans of the United States and Newfoundland. And an extra big hello to Canadian servicemen overseas. Episode 61 of the Squid and Ultimate Leaf Fan Show. I'm Mike Wilson, the Ultimate Leaf Fan. Joining me as always, my winger, Ricky Squid Vibe. Squid, how's things? Things are good, Mike. Uh, they're pretty steamy out there, I'll tell you, on the golf course. It's, uh, yeah. <laughs> but I'm not going to complain because four months from now, we'll be whining about how cold it is and how much yeah. snow is on the ground. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let that one go. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> Well, Squid, our guest today was taken by the Washington Capitals in the 1984 entry draft, enjoyed a nine-year pro career, owns and operates the Royal Tiger Junior A Hockey Club, a team I almost once played for, speaks across the country. Actually, the owner wouldn't speak to me after I didn't sign with him for about three years. Speaks across the country as part of his organization's Jim Thompson's Dreams Do Come True, along with a few other causes he supports and speaks to. One of the great guys coming out of the National Hockey League, a, a friend of ours. Please welcome to the Squid and Ultimate Fan Show, Jim Thompson. Jimmy, how are you doing? Good, guys. Thanks for having me on. Um, I enjoy what you both are doing. And uh, I got to tell this story coming out of the gate. So I was, I, I'm from Edmonton. <laughs> yeah. And my uncle got me down the trial for the Toronto Marlboros. And Frank Benella was the GM. And Murray Titmarsh, Rick would remember these guys. So first year I played most of the year in Markham for the Waxers. Yeah. Next yeah. year I played for the Toronto Marlboros. So being in Edmonton, Hockey Night in Canada, Ballard and King Clancy in the bunker and all these things that we saw West. But it was number 22 that I was admired with this guy that would go down with the big red and white Titan. Because what you got to remember, being in Edmonton, Gretzky used that stick back in the day too. Yeah. So... Rick Vibe became my favorite Leaf, and I just loved the way he skated down. And, you know, one of the things I learned from Rick was, you know, shoot it low, shoot it hard, because he scored a lot of his goals six inches and lower. And, and we ended, I ended up with this. I didn't know that uh, Rick Curran at the time was your agent, correct, Rick? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I asked Rick, I, when, I, when I signed my uh, contract with Washington, I asked Rick Kerr and I said, could you do me a favor? I said, could you get me a dozen of Rick Five sticks? And he's like, have you ever seen Rick Five stick? And I said, no, but I want those sticks. So Rick's stick was really heavy and I, it didn't matter. I scored 23 goals in the OHL with Rick Five's Titan. He got me a dozen of them. And it's something I'll, I'll cherish because it was my biggest year in, in the OHL and I was scoring those goals in Maple Leaf Gardens, Rick Five Sticks. So I, I thank you for that, Rick. It, uh, you know, I was a young kid that just loved the way you played, and um, so I was a big fan. I still am. Well, thanks, Jim. And uh, you know, the funny thing about those sticks is uh, I get a lot of ribbing. Like Gary Lehman, every time we play uh, an alumni game, there's been times where somebody would come in with one of my old Titans for me to sign. And Gary would grab it, and he'd show it to everybody. He'd go, can you believe this guy scored 50 goals with this piece of lumber? And I, I said, hey, what am I going to do? It works. Don't change it, right? You no, know, so, no. Uh, 
you know, it was going. And I, I, the problem was I was breaking so many sticks. So I had, they had to make them stronger. And the only way they could do that was make the shaft bigger and thicker. And, you know, that, but then it worked. So I wasn't about to switch. Well, why would you? Well, now, no. Hey, hey, Jimmy, so give us, uh, now you are, you know, you're the, your wife and you run the Aurora Tigers, the junior hockey club. Your son actually played there at one time. You got involved. But so maybe walk us through. Well, first off, tell us how the team is shaking, shaping up this year. And maybe speak to some of the challenges you guys are facing just after coming that we have over the last 18 months. So this year's team, Mike is very skilled. It's young, but we're very fast and very skilled. It's kind of the way the game has gone. Mm -hmm. We have one of the top 20 year old goaltenders, which is really going to help. We have uh, a solid defense core in our league, which is really going to help, but we have a lot of firepower. I'm excited because they're young, like we're going younger, but we have a lot of skill. We've done a great job recruiting. Great. Um, it's our seventh year. Challenges out of COVID have been how many kids have quit. And it's sad to see these really good hockey players that, you know, had the year off at, you know, not their choice and got out of shape or fell out of love with the passion of staying in shape and all these different things. And just said, you know what, I'm going to school or I'm going to work. So we lost in our league, a lot of players that just said, you know what, that's it. And that's across the country, obviously. Yeah. But uh, coming back, we're excited. We uh, just finished our rookie camp uh, last week. Uh, we start our exhibition season uh, next week. And uh, guys, yep, um, that's cool. so we start our exhibition yep. games next week. And uh, we're excited. You got a, a whole bunch of uh, happy faces on these young men who are back playing. Yeah, Jim. Speaking of the uh, your your tigers, I, I've had this conversation with a lot of people about, and, and I, I want to get your view on on what you think of uh, like so many sixteen year olds, you know, playing against 20, 21 year olds. Sometimes yep. they're turning twenty one in their final season, and, and I've talked to Dave Branch. I've talked to a lot of guys and say, look, like these guys are better off playing probably in a high midget league against, you know, 16, 17 year olds, uh, because let's face it, they draft, the OHL drafts, what, like 300 kids a year, yep. but only 40 of them can play in the OHL. So what, I want to get your take on what you yep. think of that. Uh, you know, cause sometimes it's, it's tough for a 16 year old going to playing against 20 year olds. Um, it's a good question. In our league, first of all, we're only allowed to sign two 16-year-olds. If we sign a 16-year-old, okay. we can't healthy scratch them, and we have to play them, play them an average of three. So if you're going to sign a 16-year-old, six, which we've signed, then that's got to be an everyday player. In the OHL, I will say this, um, there's a lot of players, and what happens is, you know, they may have D1 capabilities to go to school and they end up going to the ohl not ready and rick as you say one year two years they're back in our league now trying to get a cis you know a u sport uh scholarship so i'm a firm believer in, in no different than when we played don't go where you're not going to play don't go where you're not going to succeed mm -hmm. and i the, i love telling my story i played a hockey the whole my whole way up in edmonton outside of edmonton and scored a ton of goals. I was a goal scorer and never played a day of AAA in my life, played with my buddies, and I got a lot of ice time, got to develop, 
And, you know, obviously the rest is history from there. And I tell kids, you know, all these kids trying to get those three A's on their jacket. And if they're not playing the power player penalty kill, they're just another player in the wheel. And um, yeah, so as far as if they're not going to be that high end guy, you know, stay, stay in minor hockey and play and score and learn your skill. Well, I think one of those teams you you played for. Because my son had to make that decision. When he was 16, he got drafted by Sudbury, and but he's a dual citizen, so he had already made the U.S. development program. And we went to Sudbury and everything, and we came back. Mike Foligno was a coach who I played with in Buffalo, and uh, you know, I we had some conversations, and my son said, "Dad, you know what? I think I'm going to go to the U.S. program." He said, "I'm a good player, but I'm not a star, so I might not play a whole lot my first year in the OHL." And I'd rather play a little bit more, get some good off-ice training. Sure enough, he went there, ended up with a full ride to Miami, Ohio, got drafted 92nd overall by Anaheim, you know, and he's still playing. I remember that. You know, he's, yeah, yeah, I mean, so it was good for him. It was was a perfect thing. And he, the the best part for him was he got to see the world too, playing with the U.S. program. They traveled to Europe two or three times a year. And then at Miami, Ohio, they went through Alaska a bunch of times. Like, I mean, this kid's been everywhere, and it's it's been wonderful for him. Just hey, quickly hey, on that, I, I was in the I was at hold on, Mike, hold on. Yeah, I was no, in the yeah, alumni. Yeah, cool. I was in the Leaf alumni box once. Grant Jennings brought me in there, yeah. so I ended up sitting beside Rick Five, right? And we're sitting there, two two sober guys, right now, and Rick was hitting. Recap. Re, you're you're watching your boys' game that night, yeah. or hitting the box score, right? He didn't watch the leap games yeah. like this, right? And I'm just watching them going. I get it. I get it. Anyway, <laughs> go ahead. No, I was going to say to you, um, how did you? Well, I, actually, I think that one team you lit it up on was that the uh, Devon Dynamiters when you had the 115 points in 55 yeah. games. So yeah. yeah. And what that, happened there was I yeah. went from there. That was midget, and I ended up leaving that team and went to junior B. I was 14 years old and started playing junior B. And then from there, I went to obviously came out west or out east. Yeah, I didn't play for the Marlies. Now, listen, let's go back to the Tigers. I want to talk a little bit about that. And first off, how you got involved with the club and and got got yourself involved. And also talk about this. uh, I see it on Facebook all the time. And then I want to give you a recommendation for kids to look at that because it looks like a very elite high-end training program, JT training, I believe, so or performance. Talk about all of that. So um, my wife and I bought the team. I, I say this and I, I don't sugarcoat around it. We bought it for our kids. Our boys played uh, out in Canada in the CCHL their first mm-hmm. year. And, you know, I did want to control what was going on. And, you know, just with they went through five coaches. There's a lot of things that I'm going, wow, this is this is not the experience that I thought. So what happened was we started banging in the bushes of buying a team and we almost ended up buying a team out in Ottawa in the CCHL. A guy that I knew, well, James Richmond was the coach of the Aurora Taggers. Mm-hmm. He's, he's now at um, the Steelheads. So he said the owner might be selling. So to make a long story short, Mike, we ended up buying a team five minutes down the road with a long history and <laughs> our boys played yeah. there um, for a couple of years and they're off now. And I just have so much fun with it that, you know, it's it's just so rewarding to help these kids and, and be part of it, right? 
Um, JT Prospects is a, a program that I've had for 23 years here in Ontario. I've had it over for 30 because I was running it out different name out in, in Edmonton when I was um, playing still. And what it is, it's basically on ice eight weeks, off ice. And I know Rick can, can appreciate what I'm going to say here. The valuable messages or seed planting that I do off the ice is probably more important than on the ice. And, you know, my goal is to see these young guys live the right way, act the right way, um, be professionals, because if they're ever going to get to the next level, there's so much competition around the world now. You can't make a mistake. You can't be that guy on your phone all the time in the dressing room. You can't be that guy who's the bully in the dressing room. All these different things. So I just take my experiences from being an ass when I was a drug addict and alcoholic and, and you know, obviously the good messages I learned playing pro hockey, put it all together, what not to do and what to do. And, you know, 13 years of sobriety now, I think my message is pretty good that, you know, I do a PowerPoint for them all called, you know, career killers and yep. travel around North America doing that. And it's just, you know what, it's my story and how not to screw your career and your life up. So JT Prospects is an eight week program in the summer. And then I do two mornings a week in the winter and it's year round and uh, mentoring and all these different things. So I've been doing it for here in Ontario for 23 years. Wow. That's, uh, that's impressive. And I think, you know what, Jim, I, I wish I wish some other guys that played in the league, uh, regardless of how much money they made or whatever, would come back and to where they're from and, and start programs like that to help the kids. I mean, uh, I see it a lot. And, and, you know, I've got two boys of my own who grew up playing hockey, playing all different sports and going out with their friends and so on. And they're teenagers. And you know what? They're they're going to be teenagers, and uh, you know. But you're right; they need to learn if they're going to make a, a career in hockey or any other sport. You can't screw up because if you screw up, you're done. And because uh, teams yeah. are not going to want anything to do with you. Oh, we've seen that, Rick. With you know these guys getting, you know, uh, I'm not going to mention names, but there's players with a little history and mm -hmm. mistakes in the draft or whatever that don't get touched and it's hard to come back you know um it, you just can't make that you know big mistake with the red flag when everybody's saying i'm not drafting them i'm not drafting and, and you know in the ohl draft it's just in that little world how many kids don't get drafted or fall down the draft because of something they did you know mm -hmm. i i knew a, a mm -hmm. young fella that was the night before the draft was at a party and he was rated in the first to second round well it was one of his friends took a picture and put it on social media when a guy was on a bong. Well, guess what? I'm not going to get into it all, but no. how, what are you, what are you doing at a party the night before the draft when you're rated in the first round? So these are the things that uh, back to your question, Mike, is what I try to instill in these guys to say, don't screw your life up. Cause I listen, Rick and I are survivors of a terrible disease many times of a heart attack or my intestines blown up and and i'm here to sit here and i just you know what addiction's a powerful thing but you know the best way to quit something we know is not to start it so you just try to get them on the right track well one of the things you did uh and one of the greatest things i've seen in a, a in a few years 
Uh, during the 2018-19 season, for most people who are aware, I did follow the Maple Leafs for every game. And at one of the games, Jimmy's a friend of mine, and he invited me into a suite to to a, to a suite where he was hosting these special guests. And I'd just like you to pick the story up from there and just talk, talk about that event because I think it was a very powerful moment. It was. I'll go through it quickly. So we were in the playoffs against Wellington, and my wife called me. The game had just ended, and she goes, there was a terrible bus crash tonight. And I'm thinking, okay. And then the story started coming out, and then we heard Curtis Joseph's son got killed on it. And I'm like, no, 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 no. That's my buddy Chris Joseph, one of the guys back when I was talking about that skate we had. Mm -hmm. So it was Jackson and Joseph uh, and many of them that bus. So that's when it hit home to say, here we are traveling from Wellington the same night they had this terrible accident. So after a bit of time, I reached out to Chris and obviously gave him my condolences and that. And um, his wife uh, and him, I said, how would you feel about coming to Toronto? Everything paid for. And there's a lot of people that helped. This wasn't just my wife and I. And we would take all the survivors and bring them out for a five-day trip to go to that Leaf game that you're at. We took them to the Hall of, Hockey Hall of Fame, and we just gave them an unbelievable experience. So he put it all together from his end back in St. Albert, Alberta, and we had 13 guests. And um, the ironic part was this. Andrea, his wife and him were at, with my wife Rita and I at our house one night when they were all back at the hotel. And he goes, you know, uh, did you ever think of this, Jimmy? And I said, think about it. He goes, Andre and I are the only people here that lost their son. Everybody else were the survivors, the boys in the wheelchair, right, Jacob? Yes, and, uh, Ryan. Wow, it just was a bolt right through my body. So, you know, it was an unbelievable experience. It's obviously the highlight of owning this Junior A team. And I must tell you this story. So I yeah. emailed Luba. Uh, Don Cherry's wife and uh, hadn't seen each other since that little mix up we had on about the enforcers dying and on hockey yeah. night in Canada. Yes. So I, I reached out to Luba and um, um, she said, Don's busy while they were here. I said, okay, that's too bad because the boys are here and him and Ron McLean had gone after the bus crash, but they were all in comas back in Saskatchewan. So I woke up in the morning into an email that was sent right after midnight where Luba said, Don changed his plans. He will meet you guys at the Hockey Hall of Fame Thursday at 2 o'clock. So I didn't tell the boys and the families. We said, we're going to go to the Hockey Hall of Fame Thursday. So ironically, and this is you know more personal about me, the night that he attacked me on Hockey Night in Canada. Yeah, which okay, we're going to get into. Yeah, but you, you think of the, the time that, you know, elapsed he wore the same suit the night he attacked me to the hall of fame that afternoon when the humble people were there and i and i was just like is that like because i i'll never forget it it had to be in my seat to go through all that and i was like oh my goodness this is he sending a message right but anyway he was unbelievable um you know just the boys were so excited to see him and you know Obviously, he's Don Cherry and had a great app. Um, he was unbelievable. So, yeah, back to the original question, Mike. It was five days of uh, getting to know some fantastic people. And, you know, it wasn't about how much or who or whatever. It was. It took a village to get it all done. You know, the Aurora Keg, 
you know, Mur uh, Murray and did, you know, he put up dinner for us. Everybody was helping. Like it was, we were getting people to drive and it was, you know, how could anybody help? So it was a, just a great event. Well, I can tell you that I visited a lot of suites throughout the season. That night by far was the most emotional experience of the season. Probably the most emotional experience I've ever experienced related to a hockey type event. And I remember stopping outside talking to you before I left and we had a nice chat. But on my way back to my next stop, I had to stop for a few moments to pause and gain my emotions and get myself in check because it's just so overpowering and overwhelming. And just, you know, I, I'm running on to the next event. These people got to live with that disaster for the rest of their lives and our lives continue on. And it was just one of those moments that you'll never, ever forget. And I'm sure you and your wife and everybody around you must have felt the same thing. And Squid, even you with Justin still traveling on the bus circuit in ECHL at times, that must have just been a powerful moment for you as well. Well, it was, and you know what, to this day, I mean, you know what, it, it, like I love my son playing hockey, don't get me wrong, and I, I hope he continues to play as long as he wants to play. Um, but there's nights where, you know, he, he's a big kid. He's 6'6", 245. He's going to have to stick up for his teammates and jump in there the odd time. And, you know, and – and also he goes down, blocks shots, kills penalties. And, mm. you know, there, there's a lot of nights where I just like, I cringe and I'm going like, oh, please don't let him get, you know, hurt. And then, you know, I know that after the game, they're driving six hours or seven hours. Yeah. And then they're going to play the next night. And I'm thinking, what's the weather like? Are they, you know, is their ride going to be okay? And it's like, I mean, yeah, I, you think about that a lot. And when that happened, it was like, Oh my goodness. Like, you know, something like that finally, you know, well, it happened in tier two, but it also happened to the Lethbridge Broncos. Uh, Lindy Ruff's right. son was one of the casualties. And, and, you know, when you see things like that, it really hits home and, and you start thinking about your own children or my son in, in particular, who's doing the exact same thing. Well, you know, it's just one of those moments, and it's one every parent dreads on, on any on any note, on any, you know, facet of our life, but just just seemed to hit home, and then, you know, the whole country just sort of embraced the whole situation. And anyway, it's one of those moments that I think we'll ever forget. Now, Jimmy, back to your career, your draft year. I mean, you were having a pretty good year playing with the Marlies. You're moving yourself up. Drafts were much different in those days, as we've talked about back in the 80s. Where, so maybe just walk us through your draft year. Was there any kind of talk about you getting selected by somebody? And then actually, and we've heard some crazy tales about guys being everywhere, the any anywhere from the barber telling the guy he got drafted to a cab driver to whoever it is. When you actually did get selected, how did that day all unfold for you? Yeah, it starts like this, Mike. Um, I I wasn't, I was, Frank Manello, ironically, I found this out later. He didn't even want to keep me. He wanted to send me back to Alberta. Okay. And we they brought a new coach in, uh, uh, Tommy Martin, who was a former Marley and played for the Leafs. Yeah. And uh, Tommy wanted me. He's like, I want this guy. He's sandpaper, all these things that I brought. And so Frank kept me. So um, I had no idea that, you know, that was all going on. But I had a role. And, you know, I stuck up for my teammates. And, you know, my first year there would be a great team with Cecil and Thomas and, you know, really, we, we actually, Harold Ballard, this was just quickly enough to get off of here. That sure. was the year the OHL would uh, host the Memorial Cup. So at our team pitcher, Harold came out and he looked at Tom, right? He goes, Tom, don't F this up. 
He goes, Toronto needs the Memorial Cup. Maple Leaf Gardens needs the Memorial Cup. King and I need the Memorial Cup. Don't F it up. And at the time, we were we were uh, number one in Canada. And we were, I think our record around that time, we'd only lost four or five games and we had 30-some wins. Like, we were, we were just dynamite. And what happened was, Peter Zezel, as an 18-year-old, got called up to Philadelphia. And the head coach that I just hired for the Roar Tigers, Greg Johnson, was second rounder to Boston, got called up at 18 to Boston Bruins. We still had Steve Thomas. We still had some good players. We were the worst team when they left. We were the <laughs> worst team in the OHL in a game. And we fell down the ranks to second place. Uh, Ottawa ended up overtaking us. So John Tucker, um, some other great players on the Kitchener Ranger team, hosted the Memorial Cup. We got beat out by Ottawa. And Ottawa and Adam Creighton and that group, Bradshaw, ended up winning uh, the Memorial Cup. But I'll never forget that with Harold coming on the ice. So um, what was your original question again? Oh, yeah. Was there talk of you getting selected and what happened? Oh, yeah. 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 Tommy Martin, one practice, Tommy Martin called me over and he said, hey, some NHL teams are starting to take notice of you and all that. So... Well, well, we went through the year, um, and I was told that I was going to go anywhere between three and six rounds without the Europeans. The Europeans were just starting to come in the draft uh, quite a bit back then. So I, I grew up in a mobile home in a, a trailer park called Westview Village. So I'm back in Edmonton for the draft. Our trailer is a single mobile home. Full. I'm the youngest of 10, so you can imagine how big our family is. Yes. So it's jam-packed with this big draft party. And I'll never forget it. TSN covered the first three rounds at the time. Well, then it went off TV. So three rounds are gone, right? And there's no phone call. And then people started leaving. At 9.15 at night, my mom had a pink rotary phone. Back then it was the, you know, this. Yeah. And I, it's my best friend, my mom. And me left in the trailer, and I'm just like, okay, well, you know, I'm devastated, but, you know, embarrassed, devastated, right? Everybody's left. And Jack Button called from the Washington Capitals and said, uh, we drafted you in the ninth round. And then Rick Kern phoned me, and I was I was the happiest kid around, you know, coming out of a, a lifestyle that, uh, you know, you can't imagine. So that was my that was my draft experience. Fantastic. And, well, it's great. Yours yeah. is a phone call, too. Yeah, mine was, uh, well, I was in PEI in uh, Charlottetown, hanging out with my buddies. And I had spoken to Washington, actually, as well, the day before uh, an interview. And I thought I was going there fourth. So I go to the fire hall where we always went uh, with my buddies. And I'm sitting there, and I'm having a couple of pops. And I... They had a big jar of pickled eggs on the bar at the time. And, and so I used to love those pickled eggs. Had a few of those. And then all of a sudden the phone rang and the guy said, Rick, it's for you. So I answered the phone at the bar and it's uh, Harry Neal telling me that Vancouver took me fifth overall. And uh, wow. I'm up into Vancouver and uh, to the Canucks. And, <laughs> you know, I, at first I was like, wait a minute, I thought I was going to Washington. I don't want to go all the way to the West Coast. <laughs> But then I thought, oh, wait a minute, it's a, it's a National Hockey League. I, I'll go anywhere. You go anywhere. Now, so, Jimmy, yeah. talk about your first camp and uh, just maybe approaching your first camp and how you're going to go at it. Obviously, you're being brought in there for a physical part of your game. But 
Talk about the level of play and the overall experience just being around these guys. Well, Rod Langway, Scott Stevens, Mike Gartner, uh, Bob Gould. Rick would remember some of these names. Uh, yeah. Dave yeah. Christian, Pete Peters in that, uh, Clint Malarchuk. And I'm going, you know, your first camp, you're like, unbelievable. And as Rick would have went to Vancouver and had Stan Schmiel and all these guys, you know, I got I got this group of professionals and it was surreal, um, you know, obviously very nervous. And, you know, I'm looking at Scott Stevens and I'm going, OK, you know, I, I fought. I hated fighting. I'll tell you that right now. I was mm -hmm. a goal scorer growing up and, you know, they drafted me and Brian Murray was the coach. They were, had a tough coaching staff, uh, a guy named Ron, the late Ron LaPointe. Um, who sadly passed away. So these guys were tough guys and they wanted fights in camp and they brought a boxing specialist in. I'll never forget it to teach us boxing and, you know, the Philadelphia Flyers in that division. There's a lot of stuff going on back then. So my first camp, Mike, was uh, nerve wracking. I got through it. Um, what I do remember the most was in day four, my dad was sick back in Edmonton with cancer. And day four, 3.30 in the morning, my brother called and said, you got to get home now because he's probably not going to make it through the morning. So Jack Button got me on a plane at six in the morning. I flew back uh, to spend two hours with my father before he passed away and then went back to Washington uh, to finish camp off. But great experience, uh, great memory. And I just was in awe of these, you know, Mike Gartner skating and Scott Stevens, the size of this, you know, Scott Stevens is only six feet, six one. But his hands and his body was just like this, you know, just a big, solid, tough guy. It was like, I got to play against him. So anyway, hardest I ever been hit was my second camp uh, in training camp. Scott Stevens hit me like he hit all the other guys. I was coming. Kale Johansson uh, pushed me into the middle and I woke up in the dressing room. Right. <laughs> I was, I was 200, 215 pounds. And that's the hardest I've ever been hit. Jesus. That's Scott felt bad, oh. but there in practice, he was a tough son of a bee, and he would take you know he was he he was tough to play against in practice, and that's what made him great. So well, I remember uh, I had a good Scott Stevens story too. Uh, by the way, Mike Gardner was a guy that took fourth instead of me, so it wasn't a bad pick by the Capitals either. <laughs> <laughs> but um, Scott Stevens one night, Ben Gustafson, I think his name was. Uh, we no no tape on his stick. Was, Never taped the stick. Yeah. Yeah. And anyway, he had he had a couple of goals that night. We were down and we weren't going to win the hockey game. There was both two and a half minutes left. And I, I kind of just gave him a light slash on the arm and he went down like I broke his arm. So then there was a big melee going on and the referees got my arms behind my back and I'm on my knees. And there's a whole crowd around me. And then all of a sudden I look and there's a little hole. And I see Scott Stevens looking through the hole. And he's looking around and he's going, okay, good. And then I see his fist coming through that hole. <laughs> hit, hit me square, square in the nose. I go in and I'm, I'm in the dressing room because I got kicked out. And I'm shaving and I, I go to the mirror and I put this. And, and then I look, I take a second look and I go, where's my nose? I mean, it literally was flat, like across my face. And so I had to get it fixed the next day when we went back to Chicago. And uh, then I had to wear a full uh, face shield for about a week. And, uh, but 
Yeah, he, he was one tough son of a bitch, I'll tell you that. And yeah. very, very difficult to play against. You know what's ironic, Rick, was, you know, I came in when they finally, you know, we'll get into my career, but Brian Murray said, if you want to make our hockey team, you got to fight more. And yeah. the next year I had 41 fights in 57 games in Binghamton, led the American Hockey League in fighting or in penalty minutes, sorry. And Scott Stevens said to me when I got called up, he goes, I don't understand. He said, hitting a guy, you know, with a fist in a fight, yeah, some get hurt, but, you know, it's very rare, you know, all these punches and you'd get hit and it would hurt. Don't get me wrong. But he said, Jim, you're a big guy. Put your shoulder through their sternum. It hurts 10 times as much. So Scott, <laughs> as Rick and I both know how good he was, he wasn't the best fighter. But he was he was terrified because he was so mean, and like what what he did with Rick, you know, smashing his nose. That's who he was. So, just a fierce competitor. Well, talk about the life in the AHL. Now you've just touched on it. There was some of the fights you went through, and your reputation was growing. Now, even as a rookie, you were gaining quite a reputation. So, how did you find that? Especially some of the veterans with the level of notoriety you were, you were accumulating as you're going along. How they were treating you because you're coming in and all of a sudden now you're the big man on campus. Well, you're you're you know, and I, I I remember this. We're all young kids, right? Grant Jennings was a tough kid out of uh, Saskatoon from the Western Hockey League, and Shane Churla, the toughest guy I've ever played with. Like there there was tougher guys, Bob mm -hmm. Probert and Dave Brown. Shane Churla was the most fearless player I've ever played with in my life. Like this guy didn't care; he'd fight anybody. He fought. Uh, he fought Stu Grimson with a broken orbital bone on. That was Shane. He just he was all in, right? So we had all these tough kids uh, on our on our team, and you're playing. You know, back then Val James, Archie Henderson. There's some massive Bennett Wolf from Baltimore. I never forget this Bennett Wolf, no teeth and six four, and just a you know just a, a, a disturbing looking hockey player that's going <laughs> to eat you alive, right? So you just found Mike that. You dropped the gloves and you, yeah. hoped, you hoped you didn't get your face busted up and broken jaw and you survived it. Like that picture there, Dave Brown, Spectrum. Yeah. Now, obviously, you can see he's the, one of the hardest left punchers. I was not letting him punch you with that left hand, so I'm like, <laughs> I grabbed on and survived it. But I had to fight smart because these guys were monsters. And I had to use, you know, a lot of studying and a lot of, you know, I was a very strong guy when I played. I was 215, 220, uh, and I could hold them off. But, you know, I couldn't go toe-to-toe -to -toe with these guys. And I would just have to hope to get a few shots in, which you did the odd time and surprised them. Like one night, Stu Grimms, and, you know, he wanted to tee off on me, and I caught him. And But uh, guys like me couldn't go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Dave Browns and those types of guys. Wendell could. Wendell Wendell. He was a different beast, like Rick will tell you. He'd go to Ben Wilson and him, and, and he would fight anybody toe-to-toe. -to -toe. I couldn't do that. So, anyways, how was my that, first that year? Was, it was nerve-wracking. <laughs> that, that was one of the best fights I think I've ever seen, Jim. Yeah. It was right in front of our bench. It was uh, Wendell and uh, oh God, the guy you just said there. Ben, ben Wilson. Wilson. Ben Wilson, who I ended up playing with in Chicago. And, uh, oh, my God, they just went at it. And I, I, I fought a lot my first two or three years in the league, too. And But mine was more, you know, it wasn't the tough guys. It wasn't the, the, the toughest guys on, on the other teams. Um, but I, I did it mainly to get some room and to let people know that, you know what, I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. 
you can do whatever you want to me, and and I'm not leaving. I'm I'm going to be camped out in front of the net. I'm going to score some goals, and, and there's nothing you can do about it. So that was the meaning for me to get a little bit of room. And, and the best words I ever heard was Mike Nicola came in and he said, Rick, you're spending an awful lot of time in the penalty box. We, we need you on the ice. We, we can't have you fighting anymore. We need you to score goals. I said, oh, my goodness. Thank you, Mike. Hey. Thank you very much. <laughs> Well, Jimmy, I want to get into uh, – you're up and down for a couple of years, and finding 91 rolls around, you get a shot with the Los Angeles Kings, which was a good opportunity for you. So, I mean, take us through that season, and also you got a chance to play with a little skinny guy wearing number 99, and there must be some stories off of all of that. Well, I got every time you ask a question, i got to go back. I had I was a free agent from New Jersey. Yeah. And um, yeah. I, I had a deal made with Detroit because I was a better fit there. They had lost a lot of toughness. Yep. So my agent, Steve Bartlett, said, Detroit's the play. You'll have a good chance of staying in the NHL. And the next day, I was at my brother's shop, and he said, L.A. just matched Detroit's uh, offer. But Detroit had – or sorry, L.A. had McSorley, Jay Miller, Chikrin. They had about four or five guys. I said, I want to go to L.A. He's like, bad idea. No, I can't let you do that. I said, Steve, I grew up. Gretzky is my idol. I grew up in Edmonton. And if I have a chance to even be on the same ice with him, I'll find a way. <laughs> uh, you know, I found a way. And he was dead against me signing there. And I signed with L.A. And I was just in awe to be with this guy that we saw win four Stanley Cups. Like, you talk about a small town of Edmonton and a guy who was getting 215 points. And I got to go back to the stick quickly, Rick. That stick right there in his hands. I got one at home. He signed it to me. You want to talk about heavy like Rick Vistick. You want to talk about no curve, no flex. And he scores 92 goals with it. It was the tighten it, but this was the same weight. Everything with the Easton that uh, Wayne had was the same specs as the Titan. And you think 92 goals and 215 points. So that was my that was my thought process, and it worked out. And, uh, you know, that was us uh, stretching there. And um, it, was, it was just ama an amazing ride. Being in L.A. at that time with Bruce McDonald and, and being film-filled every night with movie stars and, you know, obviously playing with Wayne and a whole bunch. Charlie Huddy, Marty, Crucial Niski, Gary Curry, Rob Blake. But I'm talking the Oilers that I watched. Oh, okay, right? yeah. All these Oilers that. came there. So, for me, that was the big thrill, playing with all my hometown heroes. Now, Wayne was known to have a soft spot for enforcers. How is he towards you and, and just about that whole experience? And, you know, did the rest of the team accept you as well? So uh, great that I get to tell the story. So what happened was I was the only player in the history of the NHL to go on three expansion drafts. I don't know if you guys know that. No, I didn't. So I was picked by Minnesota when them and San Jose split, Ottawa the next year. So we'll stay with Ottawa. Yeah. I got picked up by Ottawa. And at Christmas, we played the Maple Leafs at Maple Leaf Gardens at the Christmas freeze. So, um, you you know, the deadline, I think, uh, was 11 o'clock on this day. So the Leafs blew us out. And I'll never forget, I had the line. We st I started the game against Wendell, right? And in the paper that morning, Wendell's back was wonky. And he may not have played. 
So we line up off the face off at Maple Leaf Gardens and I'm kind of looking over saying, you know what, I wanted nothing to do with it because, you know, we were a, a new team. We weren't very good. And the last thing I want to do in Maple Leaf Gardens is get my ass kicked by Wendell Clark. And I just, so you can see, you can see he's like, just don't even bother. Like, don't even come here. Right. So anyways, didn't have to fight Wendell. And I told him that story. He remembered that too. But um, that night I went back to the whole tell because there wasn't the social media and i got traded back to the kings so when i ended up I, I met the team in san jose bruce mcdonnell was one of the first people i saw when i got to the hotel he goes i need to tell you a story and i was a dress room guy i was a, i was that selfless player that you know fought for my teammates but i was i was a good guy in the dressing room i, I rick would would understand this when you got a really good guy that you like that keeps yeah. it together and is and is selfless and all that that's who i was so he said, I need to tell you this because they traded a 20 goal scorer for me, Bob Kudowski. He said, Wayne made this trade, you know, part of helping Marty and Jay and these guys, you know, keep Dave Brown and these guys away from it. Because it was a tough division back then in, in, in the West. Yeah. Um, he, he said that he wanted you back in the dressing room. And, you know, and that, that was the biggest compliment. And Wayne actually told that story during the playoffs on Hockey Night in Canada. When he mentioned my name and, and all that, and I'll never, you know, those are memories that you dream of. So anyways, yeah, to, just to be even talked about that way was, was amazing for me. So unbelievable. Well, you know, Jim, we do want to get into a number of different subjects with you and we got uh, time is always against us here. So one of the things I want to get into is your post career. And you've spoken about this before, and we think this is very important, um, and talked about your addiction issues. Mental illness and depression are very close to us here in the show, as we talked about off-air. We've had several players on, like Chris Knight, and hope to have Brent Myers on in a few weeks, who incidentally has written a terrific book outlining his troubled past. Let's start with you. Let's get right to it. How did you fall down the black hole, for lack of a better description? So it starts when I was 12 years old, growing up in a trailer park. If you watch the Trailer Park Boys, um, it's it, that lifestyle is real. Not a lot of money, and um, so I was a hockey player. But you know, we you know we had not a lot to do, and I got a job at the rink timekeeping, so I was making money. Well, I was introduced to marijuana. Both of my parents were alcoholics; they both died alcoholics. Uh, my brothers were into drugs; they were bikers. So at 12 years old, I started smoking marijuana and drinking a champagne called Baby Duck. So I'd go over to my buddies before grade eight. We pound a magnum between us and smoke a joint, and that's where it started. I stopped when I was 14 because I got, you know, back into hockey and took it serious. I'm not going to get into that whole story. I ended up at 16 back in with my recovering. Uh, uh, my uncle was a recovering alcoholic and his name was Jim Regan. So he was connected to Jim Gregory and Frank Pinello and all these guys. That's how I got down to Toronto. So um, that lifestyle, um, I had the poison in me. I had the DNA in me. I was very serious, Mike and Rick, about my my conditioning, lifting, being strong, working mm -hmm. out. But I also love to have fun. So I always say this on each team: you got your, you know, your guys who are going to go for room service or or go out for a quiet dinner. Then you got the middle group that may go to the for dinner and go to the bar for a drink. And then you got the guys like me who, you know, we're let's grab a hot dog on the hot dog vendor and let's go. And that, you know, times have changed, obviously, but back then. So I was that guy and I loved to, you know, have fun. 
So what happened was is uh, the black hole started and I, I flirted with things during my career. Post career is when, you know, the black hole came and I got into crack cocaine and and uh, Oxycontin, you know, should have killed me. There's nights I laid in bed, my heart beating out of my chest. And I, I was scared to move my leg. Like I'm going, okay, tonight I'm going to die. And when Derek Bugard died of the same Oxycontin yeah. and, and alcohol and all that, I, I understood it. So a terrible, terrible ride down a dark, dark road. And, uh, you know, I was in Edmonton uh, on my son's birthday uh, 13 years ago and I flew home and it was just this quiet, I always say this in Theo Fleury's book, you know, just quietly he surrendered. And I understand what he's talk, talking about. And it just was a quiet time where I said, you know, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. And that was it. And, but yeah, it was, it was an ugly, ugly time in my life. Rick? Was, uh, Jim, what, what, I mean, you obviously made a conscious decision to, to do something about it at that point. And so was that going away to rehab or did you do it on your own with a little help or, you know, how did you get through that? Because I know it's not easy. I've been through it myself um, twice. And the second time I just said, I got to go away. I got to get some help. So good question. My ex-wife uh, put me in an intervention and I went to one of the centers in Merrifield, Ontario called Newgate 180, where a lot of NHL players go. Um, great place. And like Rick said, I came out. I'm now living on my own, lost my family. I was straight as an arrow and I met this beautiful blonde lady and went out on a date. And uh, we went to the keg. My drink was Kendall Jackson Chardonnay. Loved it. I drink beer. I drink anything, but I just yeah. love Chardonnay. <laughs> so we're out for dinner. And I think I'd been, you know, months, months clean and working out. I was in great shape. And she ordered a Kendall Jackson 9-ounce Chardonnay. And my, my oh. whole system was going, okay. Oh and I yeah, said, I'll have a soda water. And she looked at me and she said, you know, in, in certain words, if you think anything's going on tonight, you're going to have a glass of wine with me. And I ended up relapsing. And, um, you know, I was, the, I was the type of guy that when I ordered my third drink, I was phoning my Coke dealer. So sadly that night, um, you know, I got back into it. And then, then what happened was I had the education from rehab. I had everything, you know, I had all the seeds planted and that night, uh, uh, November 17th, flying back from Edmonton, I was up there on some business, was uh, those seeds grew and that was it. Well, what I want to ask you guys both here is the LA Kings, I mean, this situation is 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 a developing problem when we see more of it. And I'm sure the impact of the likes of, uh, you know, Wade Belag, Derek Bugard, you just mentioned, and Steve Monter, all these other guys who've lost their lives. I'm sure that had a, a major impact on your life as it did you, Squid, as well. The LA Kings a few years ago when they were running their problems hired Brent Myers to be a voice or a sounding board, if you will, for players dealing with personal issues that might only be minor, but to the players seem insurmountable. And the reassurgence from a non-threatening voice like him that's not a coach or GM hopefully eliminates the chance of a player relapsing or spiraling out of control. Would you both like to see the NHL, I'll start with you, Jimmy, see the NHL adopt a pro program like this for each club? 100%. Do you think I was going to go and, and talk to David Poyle and say, 
I got a cocaine problem or I got an Oxycontin problem or whatever it is, not a chance. If I had Brant Myers and I told you guys off the air, read his book. It's probably the best book, Chilling. It, it's for any recovering addict. It'll it'll make you really, really, yes. you know, um, your hair will stand up. But anyway, it's unbelievable stories. Brant is a, a survivor. He's a brave man for telling the story. But if I had Brant Myers, I would have talked to him all day long and he probably would have saved me a lot of money and a lot of uh, a lot of trouble. So every team should have one. I think uh, McGratton is out in um, Calgary. Cal it was the same Cal stuff. Yeah. yeah. You know, they every team should have a former player that went through this and is now sober because we get it. Agree. Rick? Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree with you more, Jimmy. And, uh, you know, I mean, having gone through that and, uh, you know, and it's not just that. It's just the players just are not going to go to the coaches or the general manager with any kind of problem. And I think if they could go to an independent person who played the game, uh, you know, somebody who played in that city even and knows what's going on, I think they could really do a good job of helping these young kids get through certain little, because, you know, it's, it's not just, it's not all about drugs or alcohol or anything like that. These guys come in and, and some things that are very, very small seem very big to these young kids when they're playing in a place like Toronto or New York City or, you know, the, the hockey markets. And to them, it seems like, oh, my goodness, this is the biggest problem I've ever had in my life, when, in fact, it really isn't. But guys that have been through this could help them immensely, I, I believe. Well, I was going and to say, another thing, oh, go ahead, Jimmy. Go, yeah, Jimmy. Just quickly, it, 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 how much money they're all making now is not back when, when Rick and I played. We have addiction now to shopping. So you got you got these young guys, you know, buying Rolexes, buying $100,000 sports cars with their signing bonuses. And Rick and I will tell you, the minute I got bought out in Anaheim, I got hurt, that's where my career ended. And the paycheck stopped, reality hit. Because there was all the big bills, you know, with the, there's a saying, the more you make, the more you spend. But mm. these young fellas, they're, 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 they're just, you know, a lot of them have help now with the, it's different now, but the money that's being spent behind the scenes, you see how many million, million dollar athletes are going bankrupt, right? So sorry to interrupt you, Mike. No, no, no. And, and no, and I'm, that's along the lines of what I was looking for. And I was going to say, look, it's, it's enough pressure for a player to survive in the league alone. But, but now even with the social media as an example, it can be brutally cruel. Mm -hmm. And now with a voice recorder or a camera flick away, a player nowadays can't even cross against the red light and it's nationally posted. So some of these guys must be just, you know, ticking time bombs ready to explode. So if they had a voice to go and speak to just to relieve that pressure, I'm telling you, you've got a billion dollar business. Protect your assets for a very right, nominal amount. When Rob, yeah, I played with Rob Blake and, and you know, um, um, Dean Lombardi who brought Brant in, who had him in San Jose through, read the book and then you'll see the connection with I Dean did read and it. Brant. I read it. Yeah, so you see why he brought him in. And then when Dean got fired, Rob Blake and uh, Luke or whoever was there, who are obviously great teammates and great gentlemen, felt there was no need for it. And when, when I read that in the book, I'm going, what? Like, everybody mind. needs that. Everybody needs that. You're talking about, as you said, yeah. Mike, hundreds of millions of dollars invested. 
And one guy, one year super $10 million a year goes offside and ends up in the wrong place. Brant Myers could have saved his life and career and embarrassment to that city and organization. Absolutely. Squid? More importantly, yeah. the guy's life. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, I couldn't agree more. And I mean, the, 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 the thing about that job, too, is you're 24 7 you're you're there for them that's whenever right. they need help and i mean that money doesn't count on the cap so that <laughs> that, that is an invest that is an investment in the 81.5 million you're going to spend on the players to make sure that they're taken care of and they got someone to help them i i 100 percent think that every team should have someone like that well, I got two guys here talk, on the call. Yeah. I'm going to talk about two guys. Um, yeah, please. A friend of mine who grew up in Edmonton with me, John Cordick, if he would have had a Brent yeah. Myers. Uh, I know in Detroit they had people helping Bobby, but if there would have been that, you know, a Brent Myers stature guy that's been through the, the war, man, oh, man, that's a big, a lot of people. You know, there's that show scared straight. Not that you're going to threaten them to start, stop. But the fact that you just got this guy who's been through the war that's telling you you're going to ruin your life, that's a powerful message. Got it. And I, 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 I'm I, with you that 100%. Do you want a final comment on that, Squid? No, I just couldn't agree anymore. I mean, it's, uh, it's something that I think is very vital, not just in the National Hockey League. I'm talking about every every major sport should have someone like that. Well, I, I, I agree. And I think that's something we're going to continue to pound. And I said, I'll represent both you guys. I'll go make a pitch. The only show. You two both should be doing it, by the way, to my estimation, because you guys are models of you know, how it actually will work. Now, let's get into, uh, we're, we got some minutes left here, Jimmy, and we appreciate you being with us. I want to talk about just further, a couple other questions, for you, but one in particular, the Don Cherry incident. For the listeners who aren't aware, Maybe walk us through that whole series of events and how it all ended up. And it just didn't include you. It also included Chris Nyland and Stu Grimson. Okay, quickly, I, you know, I just came out and I said, the enforcer is dying because the pressure and the back, the back room, what we live. Listen, I, I just told you earlier, I had to fight these guys. I wouldn't sleep at night. I was doing things. I was drinking two bottles of wine just to numb the pain. And then, we used to do a Sudafed back in the day to get, you know, to get going and coffee. So I'm this time bomb knowing that I'll never forget it. I fought Mike Peluso and Stu Grimms and both six, six giants in Chicago. And I did really good scored a goal, actually the game winner on Eddie <laughs> Balfour. And I'll never forget it. Just, I was the hero. Right. And, and then the, the trainer goes, hurry up. Bus leaves for Detroit. Well, guess who's waiting down the road, Bob? Colbert, exactly. <laughs> so my point is, what I was saying is, this isn't for, this was my life. But I knew Johnny, okay? And I knew, you know, without talking about I talked to Wade Belak, right? Like, we discussed this stuff. And, you know, we, we may have said, oh, we love fighting and that. Many of us couldn't stand it. And we did things that we shouldn't have been doing. But a lot of it was mental health and anxiety is a word. So what I did was I... I came out and said the enforcers with addiction and all this stuff. Chris Nyland and Stu Gribson never said anything. George LaRocque had come out and he thought they had said something. It was only me. And he called us pukes, turncoats and hypocrites. 
Well, that night I was actually at a, a, a function downtown for Sick Kids Hospital with the Primo Brothers. And it was this place in the wing place. Don Cherry came on and we were signing autographs for kids. And uh, this guy that I had no idea who he was back then, I had a Blackberry. And he says, hey, Don Cherry just called you a puke on TV. And I thought I heard my name. So he actually called the three of us pukes, turncoats, and hypocrites. Well, my Blackberry just started going, right? And then it was, it was uh, as they call it, trending or whatever. Yes. So what happened was when, when the story was, you know, when everything was looked at, as I said, Chris and, and Stu had nothing to do with it, but he had already put this out there. Well, Stu was a lawyer. So we had asked Hockey Night in Canada and Don for for an apology. And he said, no way. I stick by what I feel. These guys are hypocrites. So that was Don. So the next week, he didn't apologize. So then Stu said, why don't we, why don't, we didn't, weren't suing him for money. We want an apology or we're going to sue him. So um, the following week, he did apologize on Hockey Night in Canada to, to us. And uh, that was, like I said, the last I spoke to Don. I wrote him a letter and said, listen. This thing got out of control. I love you. Like you're, you're, you're like Gretzky. You're, you're a, an idol in my life and all that. So he didn't respond to it. And, um, but yeah, it was an ugly situation. It was me and I meant it. And I took a lot of heat. I had guys attacking me. You're costing me my job. And I, and I always said this, listen, my, my, four of my family members died from smoking. So back in the day, you can smoke on airplanes. You can smoke wherever you're on. We find yep. out it'll kill you. Well, you know, a, a Joey Kosher punching guys in the head with what we're seeing with the concussions and the brain damage and all this stuff. And people say, oh, you don't get hurt in fights. BS. I had eight concussions. I got ringing in my ears. We speak my, you know, I got lots of stuff going on, but uh, that's BS. And that's what I said that take the knuckles off the brain. It's, it's a fast enough, hard enough hitting game. So that's what happened. Those two had nothing to do with it. And, um, you know, it was nice to see Don at the Hall of Fame that day. Wise well, good. Do you get final comments, Squid? You don't have to talk to me about him because I worked <laughs> for him with the Ice Dogs. Oh yes, you Trust did. <laughs> it was probably probably the most difficult year of my entire uh, life, uh, as far as coaching, uh, as far as every, everything. I mean, it was just it just put a lot more strain on my my whole life that I didn't need at that time. And of course, to top it all off, when I first moved to Oakville to take the job, that Halloween, our house burned down. So, I mean, it was right. just one thing, you know, yeah. one thing on top of another. And it was a very, very trying season. And it all came to a kind of a terrible ending, I guess, at the end of it when he fired me. and. Anyway, I won't even go into the, all the other details, but uh, it wasn't it wasn't a lot of fun. And uh, you know, no. but, you know that's the way Don was. He said what he says, and he he sticks by it, and he's not going to apologize. Well, one of the things I want to get into, Jimmy, and we've had a lot of enforcers on the show. And one of the things that surprised me, we like to think, I like to think I'm a little bit of student hockey, I know a little bit about it, but one of the things that surprised me greatly on this was the guys we've had it is the severe anxiety that enforcers feel in the role. Not so much as getting punched in the face or losing, but rather the threat of lighting your team down. A skater can give up a goal, but get it back next shift. A goalie can let in a fluke goal, but stop the rest of them. An enforcer loses. He can get revenge, yes. 
but he feels he let his team down because he has created that shadow of doubt in their mind that he can be beaten and he's not invulnerable. And every guy we've had on basically has said, got along with that line that that's the biggest pressure that they feel. Would you agree with that? Uh, and I had to be with 99, the, the best ever, right? So that was 10 times the pressure. And that's why the Kings had so many guys surrounding them. Um, my thing was that, but I had, remember, I hated fighting. I, I you know, yeah, I, I, I grew up with three bikers who taught me protective instincts, always protect your family, hit first sit in the room, have your back to the wall, all these little things that I learned growing up. But one of the biggest things that they taught me was protective instincts. So even though as a goal scorer, somebody was taking advantage of my teammate, it, there was, it didn't matter how big they were, that's, I was going. So I, and that started and that's how I became this guy that I didn't want to be. So my number one thing was the, the, the fear of, you know, losing, which would include, you're not protecting Gretzky or Rick Vive or, you know, guys I played with. Um, you know, you're playing in front of 18,000 people. What if Joey Kosher shatters my face tonight? That, like, I would sit in lobbies where I should have been having my pregame nap. I'd be, I would be sweating, sitting and hiding out in the lobby that nobody could see me because they'd be, you know, if anybody saw me, they'd be like, why aren't you upstairs sleeping? I couldn't be in there with my room and I was a basket case with anxiety and mental back then we didn't know what mental health was, but now we do. So this is the lifestyle that I was living, which led to a lot of my problems, but it was awful. Like I was, you know, I was not, I didn't, I didn't like, I was in the NHL, my dream. And, and it was like a, a horror story every day because, you know, you go from one team to the other and then you got St. Louis or back then Quebec, Tony twist. That's ready to, you know, just mangle you. So it's just one, you know, one thing after another. But anyway, Mike, to answer the question, the, the pressures were immense that uh, affected, you know, and I say this, in the in all these all these deaths from John Cordick, even before that, where are the goal scores? Like overdoses, heart attacks, suicides. It's funny that they're all enforcers, right? Mm -hmm. Where are the goal scores? Where are the penalty killers? And I'm not making light of other people having issues. Don't get me wrong. No, I got it. The forefront from Johnny Cordick dying in that Quebec hotel room that night to right through to, you know, Bougard, his heart blowing up on Oxycontin and whatever he had in the system. Why? Why? I survived it. I was lucky. Well, yeah. Rick? well I mean, anxiety is a terrible thing to have. And I, I was misdiagnosed or not diagnosed with it my first year in the league and my second year in the league. And I lived with that. That's why I drank. And, you 100%. know, whether it was the pressure, whatever, I didn't feel pressure, but I think, I think that was the alcohol. I think that was what I did to kind of take care of that anxiety. And unfortunately it led me down a bad path. And I probably could have been a much better player had I not drank as much as I had. But unfortunately, the anxiety took over and it was the only thing that I had to relieve what I was going through. And, but now we know so much more that it should be a little bit easier. 
Well, I was going to say also, Jimmy, give us another thing, something the listeners, we're going overboard, by the way, because you're such a great and you're engaging uh, guests. So we're going to extend this one. What's uh, something the listeners would not realize about the role of an enforcer? Now, you've met, touched on a couple of things. And before you answer, Jimmy, I'll preface it with this. Every guy we've spoken to has said he never goes into a fight anger, which also surprised me because it's too easy to lose control. They'd rather be going calm and deal with it that way. Well, I, I, I was terrified. Like every time I, I had 124 pro fights. That's what yeah. the, that's what it says. Yeah. You know, 41 in one year. And, and these are with some of the biggest, baddest, toughest, like you couldn't pick your poison in the American hockey league. If you, if you had penalty minutes, the big boys were coming for you. Yeah. And, um, Please. you know, uh, it, so, you know, just, just the, the, the whole, the whole lifestyle. You know, we talk about, you know, just just the whole the whole makeup of that role. Yeah. Was was, was awful, Mike. And, for, you know, when I hear Tony yeah. Twist today saying he wanted to, you know, he talked about he, he thought he was going to kill somebody some night because he could punch a hole in your head. And he loved it, you know. But it's funny, all the guys that said they loved it, like me, you know, walking around with, you know, this 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 gladiator, you know, persona. I was I was shitting my pants, excuse my language, but I was terrified. I was terrified. <laughs> well, that's a very common that's a very common well, I, I didn't I, I didn't enjoy it either. Uh it, it's it's funny because I remember my first when I got traded to Toronto, it was still my first season. Stan Jonathan and I go into the boards. I don't know what the heck happened, but we came off the boards with our gloves off. And like, here's one of the toughest guys. I grabbed Stan and I hit him square in the nose with three of the hardest punches I could ever throw. And I got my hand on his sweater and, and he goes, Rrr. and I went, oh no. <laughs> and I grabbed him, I pulled him in and I'm holding on for dear life, but he got an uppercut up underneath. And then he threw me down and he said, don't ever do that again, kid. And I said, I won't, I won't. <laughs> Jimmy, the term good pro is thrown around a lot in the world of sports. In your day, who exemplified that? In your view, how did they do that? The good pro. When you said good pro? A good pro, a hockey. But a guy you played with is termed as um, a good pro. Oh, I, Mike Gartner. Mike Gartner was just uh, a gentleman. He was a star. He, you know, he just, he cared about you. He, you know, I'll never forget it. Mike just. You know, another guy was Dale Hunter and, and Dale Hunter would take me, you know, three days a week. And back then, you know, we didn't have the Gucci gyms, what they have now. And we had a trailer with weights in it. And I, I reminded Dale of this and he'd go, come on, let's go, kid. And we'd work on our wrist together. Right. But those are guys that weren't going to the bar and weren't partying. They were they were serious about winning a Stanley Cup and obviously their play backed that up. But those are guys that I remember. And there was a lot of them. You know, there's, there's, you know, in, on all my teams, but I just, my first team, I just remember Mike Gartner and Dale Hunter really taking an interest in mm -hmm. the, uh, in the, in the rookies. Who was the funniest teammate over the years? And maybe while you're on that, the best prankster, and maybe give us an example of a good prank you experienced, got given to, or gave to somebody. Hey, you, 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 you broke up. You said, 
who are the funniest guys. Who's the funniest, funniest teammates, a couple of the funniest teammates, and maybe the best prankster and give us an example of one. Maybe done to you or you saw done to somebody else. Well, well, Mike Donnelly, who played with us in L.A., was just a funny guy. He was from the States, <laughs> Detroit. And he was just a, he wasn't a big prankster. And actually, I'm going to tell you a story because I was a prankster. And that was one of the things Gretzky loved about me is that <laughs> and I never crossed the line with goofy stuff. It was just having fun. And so we're playing and, and you guys remember the game uh, game one. We won in the forum in the final in 93 yeah. game two. Um, we're up two to one. Marty got caught with the illegal stick. They come back and win in overtime. So Wayne was always the guy that was out of the room first because he had the big media scrum and all that. So Rick will tell you that you changed in your clothing over here and you went and put your equipment in over here. They had two rooms in the forum. So what happened was, is we Wayne was Wayne was pissed off because we were going home two to nothing. And we chances are we could have won the cup that year. So anyways, he goes in in his dress socks, his dress shoes and his underwear and all the black aces are sitting in the in the change room. So we're all on the bench. Nobody's saying a word. And what do you know? He turns the blow dryer on and the whole bathroom turns white. This is not the time. He walks out and he he is freaking white. He's white. And he goes, I had a nickname horse because I got into the horse racing with Bruce McDowell and him down in Hollywood Park. And that. So they called me horse. He, he has the blow dryer and he's completely white. He goes, horse this is not the time and i hadn't done it i didn't do it <laughs> somebody had put it in in the morning skate and nobody used the blow dryer so we we reminisced and laughed about it later but to see the great one in this sad state and he was actually giggling going this isn't the time guys <laughs> well that's a story that i i love telling because you know wait listen I say this, Wayne was a better father and a better person than he was a hockey player. And what made him magical was he made everybody feel the same. And I'll give you an example. In the playoff run that year, most of the black aces out for dinner every night. And then we started winning and he's like, you guys got to come back. But it wasn't, you know, Yerry Curry and, and Marty yeah. and all you know, the upper echelon of players. Wayne would go out and he would be with the black aces. And we went the whole playoff run right until we lost to Montreal. And we had to go to dinner with him. That's what made that guy special. And he just was a wonderful guy. And uh, But, yeah, I mean, I could tell you lots of, like, you know, Rick and, like, just the stories. We talked. You ask a question, I got 10 stories behind it, right? But we don't have the time on your Well, we always we, – we, listen, that, that just gives us an excuse to bring you back, Jimmy. It's funny, it's funny you mentioned the hair. Anytime. Right? It's funny you mentioned the hair dryer, Jimmy, because I remember one of the guys did that in Toronto. And before we, we, we were just coming out, coming off practice, walking in. So Harold had, had his massage and his sauna and everything, and he just finished showering. Sure as shit, he grabbed the hair dryer. Oh, no. <laughs> Turned it on. It's all, Harold is just white as a ghost. And the guys are walking in, and, and he, he walks out, and he starts laughing. He goes, boy, that's a good one. I don't know who thought of that, but that was pretty funny. <laughs> well, that's terrible. Of course, we're sitting I, our, we're I sitting our pants because. <laughs> yeah. One, one funny one was when we were doing the team picture for the Marlies. He, he insisted on in having his dog in the picture, and the photographer's going, Harold, this is, this is for 
my effing dog, like you, like if you want your job, like he just went nuts. So they negotiated that one picture with the dog and one without the dog, right? That's the best <laughs> the guy could do. But oh my gosh, he was he was just a, a real I I you know I didn't interact with him like Rick would because we were obviously the young team. But anytime he was around, I was in awe. Him and King Clancy, and then I was just I grew up like I said, you know, watching from Edmonton, and and it was the Maple Leafs were it. So just great memories. Hey, Jimmy, one oh, final question. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Scrat. Well, Jimmy, we had the dog in our team picture oh, every year. So the one year, so for some reason, it took quite a while to get everybody assembled and, you know, in the right spots and everything. We're, we're, we're done. And, you know, so everybody starts getting up and then skating around. TC Puck, Errol's dog, tries to get up and yelps. Well, his balls were frozen to the ice because he was there so long. <laughs> well, Harold went nuts. He started yelling for Tommy the dog walker, get your ass out here with a bucket of water. <laughs> that it was, is it was funny. pretty funny. <laughs> wow. Well, one last question here, Jimmy, for you before we let you go. And again, thanks for your time. Best line from a fellow enforcer after a battle you've had with them, or maybe you heard them give somebody else, but mainly with you. Um, I'll meet you in the bar for a beer. And that was the, that was the, the, just the, the you know, we would go and I fought many of my friends like yeah. Rick will tell you. And I know Rick did a lot of fighting in his career, but you know, you had to do, and then we're going to, you know, yeah, it wasn't like you just, we would meet after and laugh and, you know, uh, have a beer together, but you know, what, what bar are we meeting for a beer? And this is after, you know, probably four good punches connected where it's you know like this and then you know so then to me that was the the real back room of an enforcer that we didn't hate each other we respected each other but you know what if we saw each other in the bar it's like you know what wow here we are and and two guys uh rick back in the minor days chris mccray and kev mcguire so they're in Newmarket, and we were in Binghamton, and we had just unbelievable battles. Val James was there, Blake Wesley, all these guys, and and you know I'll never forget it. We end up in the bar, and we all, you know, just having the merry old time. And then what's funny is all the other players around going, "This does not make sense. These guys just kicked the shit out of each other." <laughs> and there they right, but that's so. Mike, when you asked the question, yeah, it was a beautiful thing that you could actually go out and be real, and and yeah. then you know be a gentleman afterwards. Well, that's that's why guys would go into fights not really angry because it was in control and they weren't really hating the guy they were fighting. They were just doing their job. Yeah, sure, of course. Squid, final thought yeah. before we let Jimmy go? No, just uh, he made a real good point there because the, the hockey guys are great that way. Like Rob Ramage is a friend of mine. And I mean, but he broke sticks over my arms and legs in front of the net. And I'd give it back to him. But we'd be up at Big Liardi's after the game and having a couple of beers and something to eat and discussing our families and our kids and everything else. And, and everything was like nothing happened. But that was – you didn't take what you did on the ice afterwards when you ran into one of your the guys you played against. And I think that's what makes hockey players so unique is that we're able to do that. And – and do it very well. Like, we're, 
the guys just get along so good. The alumni games I play in, I played against most of the guys, but now we're best friends, you know, and now that I got to know them, they're great guys, and, and I really enjoy it because the hockey community is so close. I, I think it's fantastic. Final I got to say, say this. Yeah, I'm a I'm a hockey geek. So I grew up watching men's league when I was a kid. I'd walk over to the rink and I'd stand there all night watch three men's league hockey games. I, yeah. I live. I'm a rink rat till this day. So even though I played, when I'm on with the Rick Five or I'm in the presence of another NHLer, I'm I'm honored because I I just know what it means and even though i played i like you know it doesn't matter if they played one game or a thousand just yeah. the fact that that you know that you live that life so for me you know and i you know guy over here guy over there i'm honored to meet him like i'm like wow like i'm really and that's how i feel about it right and people are like even my wife goes why do you feel that way i said because you have no idea what it takes to get to that level and i'm just you know i'll never forget i was playing for the marley's and Bob McGill's from Edmonton. Yeah. So we had a water slide yeah. out by the trailer park and Bob McGill was there with his wife. And I was just like, Oh my gosh, Bob McGill, you know? And, and, and so I went up to him and I was just like, Hey, you know, I play for the Marlies. What are you doing here? I'm from here and all that. And, you know, it was just, I was just like in awe. Right. And then Bob and I, you know, got into a couple of pushing matches later. And it doesn't matter. That's just how I feel about the game of hockey. Well, it's funny you said that because we had Doug McLean on a couple of weeks ago and Doug McLean said, listen, guys, let's be clear about one thing. Whether you play one game in a national hockey, league, you go play a thousand, you play one game, you're an elite player. I don't yeah. care what anybody says, you're an elite player to play at that level, to get there, to compete with these guys even once. So that's the mindset of how people really view players who play the national hockey league. Yeah, Doug McLean was one of those crazy coaches I had in Washington. <laughs> he loved his tough hockey, right? Who are you going to fight tonight, Jimmy? I, I don't know. I don't know, Doug. <laughs> well, we'll get that one the next time. you So, Jimmy, we want to thank you so much for joining us today. It's been fantastic. We didn't get to half the stuff I wanted to talk to you about so much more, but uh, we'd love to have you back at some point down the road when the season's underway. Keep us I, up on how the Aurora Tigers are doing. I want to come up and watch them play this year. If Squid and I do. come to a game, we want to please come up do. and watch you play. Yeah, please do. And I'll say this, Mike, um, complete shout out for your tour. Going to every game was amazing. I followed it. Um, I've been to your home. Um, you've been very kind to me in those those uh, presentations you put on. And, Rick, I'm honored to be on with you. Uh, like I said, I sat. We, You know, they would let us into the get gardens free to watch your games and you go up and down the right wing i just i'll never forget it um paul what was the announcer's name paul um paul pa oh paul morris oh, paul morris yeah i mean paul what a morris. voice what a yeah. voice hey that's the yeah. voice toronto 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 goal scored by number 22 <laughs> <Rick> <laughs> <Bye>. right <laughs> but that was it i loved it right that was the best now listen good luck tomorrow at the let's Eat tournament yeah play well say yeah. how to let me for us he's we another will. good friend of ours yeah. Jimmy, thanks again. Uh, Thank and we'll talk to you soon, buddy. Bye, Rick. Bye. Thanks, Michael. Jimmy. Bye now. And one day at a time, right? <laughs>